Good morning. You guys ready for the word? All right. Way more ready than first service was. It's St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. I'm wearing green for you. Some of you failed at St. Patrick's Day. I'm just looking around the room. You're failing at St. Patrick's Day. You're winning. Uh, some of you are failing. Um, yeah, St. Patrick was this great missionary to Ireland, did a lot of things great for God. We celebrate it every year by getting smashed and <laughs> pinching one another. It's kind of a strange, strange thing we've turned this into, but whatever, all right? So Revelation 2 and 22, Numbers 22, I should say, Revelation chapter 2 and Numbers chapter 22, if you have your Bible. I have so much to unpack today, uh, we're just going to jump into it. So we are in a series called Dear Church, where we're looking at the seven letters to the seven different churches in Revelation chapter 1 and chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Uh, those were written by the apostle John. Jesus gave him a vision. He wrote it down about 95 AD. And so uh, we've looked at so far um, two letters, the letters to the Ephesians and to Smyrna. And so today we're going to look at Pergamum. If you missed uh, any of those last two uh, sermons or messages from the last two weeks, make sure you get them. It'll help you understand uh, the context here for today, and uh, you'll get something out of those as well. So in each of these letters, Jesus, uh, he, he says this. He says, he who has an ear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says that seven times. So this is to anyone who would take the time to listen, anyone humble enough to, to take Jesus's correction, anyone wise enough to heed his warnings. So in other words, this was written to Pergamum. The letter we're going to look at today was written to Pergamum in 95 AD, but it was also written to the believers at Great Oaks, at the church at Great Oaks in 2019. It was written to you and it was written to me if we would have an ear to hear. And so here's what I would like to do um, with our time today. Jesus is going to talk to Pergamum, the church at Pergamum, and us about compromise. He's going to talk to us about compromise. But when you read this letter, at least on its first reading, it is difficult to understand. Maybe, maybe you, maybe not, but maybe it's a little difficult to understand. And so what I would like to do is read this letter in its entirety to you. And then I'd like to spend some time talking about the context of Pergamum and then talking about a specific biblical event that is mentioned in this letter about a prophet named Balaam. And so I'd like to talk about those two things. Then I'd like to read this letter to you again with that knowledge in your head and then give you a couple things to think about uh, by the, at the end of the message today. Is that okay with everybody? Okay, it doesn't matter. I've got the face mic. Um, also, you know, that was really for like the type A, like borderline OCD people. Everybody else was like, what did he just say? I was, I was checking my Facebook. It's fine. All right, it's fine. That's the danger of like, go to the YouVersion Bible app. You're like, YouVersion Bible app and Facebook, all right? So we're, to we're on to you. We're on to you. Um, just don't do Amazon shopping. All right, I'm done. Ver uh, Revelation 2, starting in verse 12, says this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, 
Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay. Let's start by just talking uh, some, some history of the city of Pergamum uh, to give you some context. It's, it's modern-day Bergama, Turkey, okay? And what you need to understand about the city of Pergamum in 95 AD is that it was a very religious and a very dark place, a very dark uh, city. It was known as a city as the temple keeper. Pergamum was the temple keeper because there were so many different temples to so many different gods. Zeus, Demeter, um, Athene, Dionysus, and even lesser known cults um, thrived there too. Uh, like a, a very dark cult called Asclepius, or to the cult of Asclepius. Um, Asclepius was this serpent god of healing and medicine. And so if you were walking down the temple street in Pergamum, you would see this huge statue of a serpent, and people would be bowing down to it and offering sacrifices. If you're in the medical field, um, you know there's a symbol that goes with medicine, with the medical field, and it has a serpent in it. That's Asclepius. That's where that comes from. And so this is a dark place, and there was this cult also there called the, the Magians, and the Magians had been kicked out of Babylon. So if you're too dark of a cult for Babylon, that's pretty bad, right? They'd been kicked out of Babylon, and the leader of the Magians, he, he was called the, the bridge builder because he was supposed to span the gap between the people and Satan and his hosts. So... This is a dark city full of blatant pagan idol worship. And the temple of Zeus there had this literal throne in it that, that the statue of Zeus would sit on. So maybe that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the throne of Satan being in Pergamum. Or maybe Jesus is just talking about what we're talking about, that Pergamum was this hotbed for cults and idol worship and demon worship. And, and so that, in that way, it was the, the throne of Satan. But there's one other possibility. Um, Pergamum not only had these temples to all the gods and cults I've mentioned, but they also were the first city in Asia to build a temple uh, for emperor worship, the imperial religion. So this was not just like a statue that you go and bow down to and then you're done. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> this was a full-on religion. Full-on religion with priests and, and, you know, ascribed worship and all of that. In fact, sometimes you were required to offer a sacrifice um, in uh, the imperial uh, temple. And so and if you didn't, you would get in trouble for it, obviously. So you can imagine this was a very difficult city for Christ's church to be in, to, to thrive in, to live in. It would be difficult to be a Christ follower in Pergamum, it would be difficult in Pergamum for Christ followers to live their faith out loud without running into conflict with all of these established religions and established cults. It would be very difficult to live like Jesus wanted them to live and not come into 
problems with these other religions and cults. All, all of which, hear me clearly, all of which Satan stood behind as king. All of which, behind, behind these cults, behind these religions, Satan stood as king. He, he was the one behind each and every one, the enemy of Christ and his church. And so to say that these cults were not true, to say that they were not right, not acceptable, that would get you, get you in trouble with the authorities, fined, thrown into prison, beaten, or worse. I mean, people had died. Um, Jesus just mentioned one, Antipas, who, who was a faithful witness and had died for it. And so people were dying for their faith. And this is a dark place. I, I don't think we live in a place that's much easier for the gospel to thrive. But we'll get to that in a minute. So that's some historical context of Pergamum. Now let me talk to you about Balaam and Balak. Uh, interestingly enough, we just had a discussion about this as a staff because we're going through the book Undercover by John Bevere. You can check that out. It's got a whole chapter, at least one chapter, on uh, Balaam and Balak, and so you can check that out uh, when you have time. Uh, but in this letter to Pergamum, Jesus mentions these two names, Balaam and Balak. They're not the first time. It's not the first time that it's, they show up in the Bible. In fact, Jesus is referencing Numbers chapter 22 23 and 24. So if you have your Bible, you can head over there. You can kind of earmark it, read it later, because I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I'm just going to tell you the story and read uh, little pieces, because we just uh, don't have time. But basically, what's going on in Numbers 22, 23, and 24 is that the Israelites are wandering in the desert um, under the leadership of Moses, okay? And so this is, this is after the Israelites are delivered out of Egypt. They've marched the Red Sea. All that happens. They're marked. They marched all the way to the promised land. They've already been to the promised land. Uh, they chose fear over faith. And so God punishes them and says, you know what? You're going to wander in a big circle in the desert for 40 years, basically just enough time for that generation to die out, except for Joshua and Caleb. And so that's what they're doing. They're, they're wandering around the desert, but they are not a small group, okay? They're a huge horde of Israelites. And so as they're wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, um, they, they, they're coming into contact or, or entering uh, the territories of other sovereign nations. And those nations don't like this. They see this as a threat, and so many of those nations come out and fight against the Israelites, but God gives them victory after victory after victory. So there's this reputation growing about the Israelites. Like, man, God delivered them out of Egypt. Like, Egypt. He, he beat Pharaoh. Man, that's, that's crazy. Man, the God of the Israelites, I heard he just whooped up on the Amorites. Is that true? Like, what is going on with these people? And so this reputation is growing. So they show up to the land of the Moabites. The Moabites. And the king of the Moabites, a guy named Balak, is scared because he's heard the reputation. And so he doesn't think he can fight against them. He doesn't think he can win. And so he's scared they're just going to take over. And so Balak, the king, contacts the most powerful person he knows, a shady McShaderson prophet named Balaam. Okay? So these two names are a little hard to keep straight because they sound similar. Balaam is the prophet. Balak is the king. You with me so far? Numbers 22, Balak asks Balaam the prophet 
to curse the people of Israel. He says this in verse 6. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So he asked Balaam to curse the people of Israel. Verse 12. But God said to Balaam, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam the prophet rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak the king, go to your own land for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So King Balak goes, hey, will you curse these people so that I can defeat them? Balaam goes, no, God told me I can't do that. And now King Balak gets that word and he's not, he's not okay with that. And so he goes, how am I going to get the prophet Balaam to do what I want him to do? He sends more messengers to Balaam and says, I'll give you a ridiculous amount of money, life-changing amounts of money, if you will just do this for me and you will curse the people of Israel. And then the prophet Balaam says something interesting in verse 18 when they offer him all this money. Balaam answered and said to the servants of King Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So he says, no, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. God's not in it. I can't, I can't curse. I have no power to do this on my own. It's only God that gives me the power. So he says, he says no. But then right after he says no, God kind of flips the script on him and tells him to go with Balak. He's like, actually, I do want you to go. I got something to show everybody. <laughs> so I, I need you to go uh, with King Balak. And so Balaam goes, all right, now I'm going. So he tells King Balak, I'm going. I'm coming to you. And on his way, there's this crazy story that I don't have time to get into. But on his way, basically the prophet Balaam is almost cut in two by an angel with a fiery sword. And he's saved by the donkey he was riding on. Okay, so Balaam's donkey, if you've ever heard of that. Balaam's donkey actually gives, is given the power, or the ability in that moment to speak in a way that the prophet Balaam understands, the, the donkey saves Balaam's life. He almost died. He gets past it. I don't have time to get into it. You can read it on your own this week. But just know this. If someone's ever saying to you, like, I'm not sure God can use me, or I'm not sure I want to do this for God, you know, or God's able or whatever, you can say, like, well, I mean, he used a donkey. And, you know, people have called you a donkey before. It's like a different word, but it means the same thing. So maybe there's something to this. Maybe God can use you too, right? So you could kind of use that. I don't recommend it. I'm just kidding. Probably shouldn't say that. So this whole donkey thing happens. It's a crazy story you should read, but Balaam's story doesn't stop there. He goes to King Balak. King Balak takes the prophet Balaam to a high place where he can see a piece or a part of this great horde of the Israelites. And he says, can you curse them from here, Balaam, the prophet, he, he does all these sacrifices and he asks the Lord to give him a word. And remember, King Balak wants him to curse the people, but he opens his mouth to pronounce a curse. And instead, God has him pronounce a blessing on the people of Israel. And verse 11 of Numbers 23 says, Balak said to Balaam, the king said to the prophet, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care? Balaam said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So it doesn't work out. 
Wants him to curse them. He opens his mouth. Actually, blessings come out. King Balak is, is a persistent dude because he goes, oh, I'm going to try this again. So he takes the prophet Balaam again to a different high place. He thinks maybe a different angle will help you. Here's a different angle of the Israelites. Now curse them so that I can defeat them. The prophet Balaam does the same thing. He, he, he offers sacrifices to the Lord. He asks the Lord for a word, and the Lord gives him a blessing. He opens his mouth to curse the people of Israel. A blessing comes out a second time. You keep in count one prophecy, two prophecies. This is the second time. And he says in this prophecy something very interesting I want to point out to you. It's easy to remember where this is. It's Numbers 2323. If you can remember that, 2323. It says, he says in the middle of this prophecy, this blessing, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. In, in other words, it's impossible to put a curse on God's people. No enchantment, no divination, no incantation, no spell will ever work on God's people. Isn't that interesting? I thought it was. You guys know? Isn't that interesting? Like you don't have to fear that kind of stuff. If you hold close to the Holy Spirit, hold close to Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you, you don't have to fear curses or spells or anything like that. No spell or curse will work on you. So this, this happened twice, right? He tries to curse. He's, he's only able to bless. You'd think that King Balak would be done. He'd get the message. He doesn't. He's very persistent. He tries a third time, takes the prophet Balaam to a third place to see the Israelites, to pronounce a curse. It all happens the same way it happened the first two times. Sacrifices, asking the Lord for a word. Balaam opening his mouth to curse the people and instead gives a blessing uh, on the people or pronounces a blessing on the people. And then it says this in verse 10 of chapter 24, Balak's anger after those three times was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hands together and, and Balak, the king, said to the prophet Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies and behold, you have blessed them these three times. So after this, the, the prophet Balaam basically goes, didn't I, I feel like we already talked about this like three times. That I can't, I can't do anything that the Lord doesn't give me permission to do. So he kind of says that same thing, and Balak's not getting it. And then now, now Balaam, the prophet, says one more prophecy. So how many prophecies is that? Four. This is the fourth one. So he does four prophecies, four words of prophecy over the Israelites. And this time he gives it kind of to King Balak, and he basically just says to King Balak, like, hey, uh, the, the Israelites are going to wipe out the Moabites and anybody else who comes in their way, and this is what's going to happen, and you've basically got no hope. So see you later. And that's, he kind of ends there. So at the end of chapter 24 of Numbers, that, that's it. He, he, he doesn't curse the people. He's only able to bless them. He does these four prophecies, and that, that's the end of the account of Balaam. He doesn't curse the Israelites, but look at the very next verse in chapter 25 of Numbers, verse 1. It says this, while Israel lived in Shidom, because you can't pronounce that a different way um, in church. And so, while Israel lived in Shidom, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord 
was kindled against Israel. What happens next is that God sends a plague on the people of Israel that kills 24,000 people. 24,000 people. So, so here's what went down. The prophet Balaam, he still wanted to get paid. At the end of 24, he can't curse them. He has to bless them. But this shady McShaderson prophet Balaam, he still wanted to get paid. And so he came up with an idea, and he told King Balak, hey, here's an idea. Why don't you send some attractive Moabite women to the camp of the Israelites to entice them to compromise, to entice them to sin? And hey, while you're at it, not just sexual sin, why don't you have them carry their idols and teach the people of Israel how to sacrifice to their false gods. Why don't you do that? And that will cause the same problem you wanted me to cause. That will curse them just as good as I could have cursed them. In other words, Baal, I mean, Balaam the prophet goes, I can't pronounce a curse on God's people, but I can entice them to pronounce a curse on themselves. I can entice them to sin, to compromise. And the result will be the same. They will fall under a curse. Now, you may be going like, where are you getting this? Because it ends in 24. Well, I didn't make it up. I know this shady McShaderson prophet did this because it says in chapter 31 of Numbers, Moses is speaking about what happened in chapter 25. And he says this, Behold, these on Balaam's advice, these women on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, the one we just read in 25. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So I know it from that, but more importantly for us today in our Dear Church series, we know it because we read this letter to the church at Pergamum, right? He mentioned it in verse 14 of Revelation 2. He said, I have a few things against you. Jesus said this. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Eat food or meat, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, You'd think that um, this idea of sexual immorality would be something I don't have to define. And in fact, it was something I, I wouldn't have had to define just not too many years ago in our churches and in our country. But today, it's something that we have to be very clear about. So let me define it just like I did last week. When you take the, the breadth of the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality and what that is, sexual sin, here's what it means. It's any sexual act outside of the relationship, the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Any sexual act outside of, that happens outside of a marriage between a man and and a woman. That is sexual immorality. Now, some people go, well, that's like an Old Testament view, and the New Testament is like grace and love, and, and Jesus, you know, he didn't, he, he wasn't about that and all that. And, and I would just say that Jesus didn't lessen this. He didn't pull this back at all. In fact, he took it up a notch because in Matthew 5, he said not only is it sexual acts uh, that are outside of a marriage relationship that are uh, sexual immorality, but he goes, it's also sexual thoughts. 
So he goes, any thought, is, if you have a thought uh, you know, of lust after a woman or after a man that is not your wife or not your husband, then you've committed sexual immorality too. So Jesus actually raises the bar. He doesn't lower it. He raises it. So that's sexual immorality. I'm going to spend, oh, I've planned to spend a whole message on, on sexual purity and the biblical definition of sexual immorality and sexual purity and sexual identity. Um, a whole message on that in our next series. It's called, uh, the series is called Redacted. And so you can watch for that um, and invite your friends to that. I'm sure, sure they'll love that, okay? <laughs> so um, he also says, though, meat sacrificed to idols, not just sexual immorality. So what What's the big deal about eating meat sacrificed to idols? I mean, a hamburger is a hamburger, right? So why, why does it matter? Well, um, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were taught that one of the ways they should worship God is to sacrifice an animal as an offering to him and then to eat the meat together as a family, to enjoy it together as a family. And they were taught that this is one way that they could worship the Lord. And so eating meat that was sacrificed to idols was a form of, very clear at the time, a form of worship, Okay. But, but this is deeper than just, than just meat, okay? This is, in a deeper way, the problem wasn't the meat. Um, the problem was compromise. The problem was compromise. God didn't and doesn't want his people getting anywhere close to idols. He doesn't want his people getting anywhere close to demons, to false gods, to wickedness, to evil, to sin. He wants us to stay far away. In other words, we're not supposed to have dinner with demons. We're not supposed to sit at the table with false gods. We're not supposed to eat with false gods. We're not supposed to hang out with false gods. Don't play with false gods. That's what this is saying. That's the point here. Okay, you with me so far? Let's all take a deep breath. Oh, gosh, that was a lot of information, right? And so I've talked about the background of Pergamum. I've talked about Balaam and Balak and that whole thing and how Israel brought themselves under a curse through sexual immorality and eating meat sacrificed to idols. Um, and by the way, all of this that we've talked about can be found in the Bible or by a simple Google search, Okay. Um, this is not crazy. I, it's not something that I had to know, you know, I had to go to seminary to learn or anything like that. So if you were reading Revelation chapter 2, the letter to Pergamum, you could find all of this out yourself, okay? You, you could find all of this out yourself. You just have to not be the kind of Bible reader that's reading and goes, I don't understand that. Oh, well, I'll keep reading. You got to not be that. You got to not be a Bible reader and more so be a Bible studier. Somebody who studies the scriptures, asks questions, does some research. And so you could have figured all this out by yourself, but you didn't. And I'm really mad at you for it. So I had to give all that information to you. I'm kidding. But let's read now with all of that information in our head, the context. Let's read this letter again. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Pergamum got a letter. You got a letter, I got a letter, the church at Great Oaks got a letter, it's from Jesus. It says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name 
And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So white stone, hidden manna, new name. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. I have no idea. I mean, I have an idea, but there's so many interpretations for this, I don't even want to go into it, okay? So many different things that you could believe this is, but but here's what I do know about it. Jesus says that we're going to get it when we go to heaven, so it's in heaven. The second thing uh, I know about it is that it's really good because it's from Jesus, And the third thing I know about it is that you have to conquer to get it. Not believe, not start, but conquer. Okay? Now that you understand what this letter is saying, um, what what does it matter, right? So what's the application? Two things I want you to think about, okay? First, um, Pergamum, and we're, yeah, as we close here, I, I meant to say that earlier. This is a trick to get you to think we're closing soon. It's not really true. It's a seminary trick. Okay, as we close, in closing, before we close, we're not closing. Okay, so Pergamum was full of idols, cults, demon worship, um, and, and there was this expectation that you're like, well, you know, you worship your idol, and I worship my idol, and you worship your God, and I worship my God, and, and, but nobody can try to like claim any kind of absolute truth. Uh, nobody can kind of claim any kind of, any kind of uh, anything about their God being greater or more or only or, or anything thing like that. You worship your idol and I'll worship mine. Everybody had to be tolerant of everyone else's cult, everyone else's idol, everyone else's demon, everyone else's God, everyone else's truth. And to speak out against anything, to say something like Christ is the only hope of the world or there is such a thing as absolute truth or even to call a certain behavior sin that was, that was intolerable, unacceptable. Now, who are you to say that? Who are you to claim that kind of high ground? Does this sound familiar? Yeah, we, we live in a time and in a place not that different from Pergamum. I don't think our city, our country, our culture is much different from Pergamum's. It's called polytheism. It's just the worship of many different gods. Our world is full of gods to worship. You worship yours and I'll worship mine. No problem. Just don't start thinking that, that, 
yours is true and mine is false. Don't start thinking that one is true and one is false. Don't, don't start thinking that, that one is real and one is just wood, stone, make-believe, fake. Don't do that. Truth? I'll find your own truth. Truth is within you. Truth is what you want it to be. But don't start declaring any kind of absolute truth, any kind of higher truth. Jesus? Oh, yeah, I like, I like Jesus. I'm not, he's cool. Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father? Where are you getting that from? Where are you getting that intolerant crud from? Oh, the Bible? Oh, well. I mean, I like Jesus, but if the Bible says that, I guess some of it's not true. Living with my girlfriend or boyfriend or fiancé before marriage is sin? Who are you to tell me what sin is? Oh, the Bible says that? Oh, well, I love her. I love him. So Jesus knows my heart, and you shouldn't judge me no matter what the Bible says. You see what I mean? That's just a drop in the bucket. I mean, I deal with this all the time. Out there amongst unbelievers or non-believers, sure, but also in circles of people who would say they are mature believers in Christ. Buying into this ridiculous idea that truth is anything but absolute and its source is anything but the Bible, God's word. It's compromise. Compromising the truth of God's word. It's because we live in a place not too unlike Pergamum. And then think about this a second. Balaam, he couldn't curse the people of God from a distance. He couldn't curse them, and so he enticed them to bring themselves under a curse. That's what was happening in Pergamum when Jesus sends this letter through the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John uh, to the church there. That's what was happening. These people in the church who had committed their lives to Christ, they weren't being enticed and tempted to go bow down before Zeus. They weren't being enticed and tempted to go bow down before the serpent god of healing. They weren't being enticed and tempted to go bow down to the emperor's statue. They were being enticed and tempted, the Bible says, this letter says, by the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And what was that teaching? Sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Compromise. The teaching was telling them that it's okay to do what they know the Word of God says they cannot do sin. And I imagine in a very religious place like Pergamum, uh, the arguments were probably hard to combat, right? Like, probably people were saying things like, hey, hey, you know me. Like, it's okay to do this. Like, we've known each other a long time. I'm getting, I'm a good person. Like, no, it's okay. You can, you can be a part of this. You can, you can do this. No big deal. 
Or, hey, who's to say this is bad or this is sin? I've done it my whole life. My father before me did it. His father before him did it. How could you say this is bad? How could you say this is sin? There may have even been arguments like, well, don't you teach that your Jesus is a God of love? How could a God of love create you with this desire and not allow you to satisfy it? Or don't you teach that you serve a God of grace? Doesn't that mean that you just kind of do what feels right and then God will cover it in the end? Can't you just kind of do whatever you want and then God will cover it by his grace? After all, he knows your heart. They weren't being tempted to bow down to Zeus, the emperor, or the serpent god of healing, or any other demon. They were being enticed with compromise. We may not have a temple street in our city where idols are placed and demons are worshipped, like Pergamum, but we have idols everywhere. Money, status, self, pleasure, sports, entertainment. What about this one? Kids. Many of us worship at the altar of our kids. We put them above everything else, their schedules above everything else, their happiness above everything else. Invitations to compromise are everywhere, and some, sometimes they sound really, really good. They're everywhere. And make no mistake, just like in Pergamum, behind all of these, Satan stands as king. Satan stands as king, and he wants the same thing he wanted then. He wants you confused, sidelined, deceived, into embracing sin, condoning the murder of infants, and leaving people to die in darkness and poverty. Stuff that we should know is bad. Stuff that we should know is sin. He, he, he's enticing us into that. That's his goal with compromise. Listen, I, I don't think there are any of you who are going to go home this week and, and bow down to a demon directly and worship at a false idol. But are you eating with them? <laughs> I mean, are you, are you having dinner with demons? Thinking, man, I'm still good. I haven't crossed the line yet. I haven't done anything crazy. I'm just hanging out. I'm just getting close. But I haven't crossed a line. Because listen, compromise and disobedience are the same thing. Partial obedience and disobedience are the same thing. Compromise and outright rebellion end in the same place. Hell. To knowingly reject any part of the truth is to accept the lie and the liar behind that truth, or that lie, I should say. So, are you eating dinner with demons? 
You might go, hey, Jesus had dinner with, he, he ate with sinners, right? Like he ate with sinners. What are you saying, Pastor? We shouldn't hang out with people who need Jesus. We should just kind of gather together with church people all the time and be better church people and shine the light on people who are shining the light. No, I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm talking about. You can eat with sinners and not dine with demons. You can spend time with people who need Jesus and hold true to the convictions and the truth of Scripture. In fact, that's the only way that you're going to make any difference in a world full of darkness is if you're in the darkness, but not of the darkness. The Bible says in the world, but not of the world. So I'm not talking about eating with sinners like Jesus did. I'm talking about compromising and dining with demons. So where are you compromising in your life right now? Think, think through your life. Where are you basing what you believe and what you think on anything other than the truth and the word of God? Where are you believing things based on experience, based on what your niece or your nephew is going through, based on what your son or your daughter is going through, based on some book you read that, that, that was supposed to be by a Christian author or some scientific research thing you read. Where are you basing what you believe and what you think on anything besides the word of God? What is it? Wherever it is, whatever it is, Jesus says that you are to repent of it. And if you don't repent, he says, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to make war against you with the sword of my mouth. The sword of his mouth is the word of God. It's the truth of Jesus. It's the word of Jesus. So then the very thing that God has given us by his grace and because of his love, that the very thing that can keep you from compromise and darkness and lead you instead to truth and light will at that time become an instrument of judgment and war used against you. And listen, beloved, there will be no new information at that time. No new revelation. There will be no surprise. Like, oh, I didn't know that. No. You have everything you need to live out the truth of God right now. Uh, I hope that you'll run to it. That you'll run to his truth, the truth. That you'll pick it up and wield it like a sword against the enemy. Instead of compromising little by little. Until that same sword is used against you because you're the enemy. If... You can think of a time or a place or a thing in your life that you are compromising right now. Doesn't mean you're past the point of no return. Disobedience is correctable. Compromise is correctable. Jesus says, just repent. Just repent. Just tell him, tell others, 
Say, I was wrong about that. And then run to the truth of God and base everything you believe and everything you think off of the truth of God. And here's another thing. If you've been living loudly in your compromise and in your deception, then you need to lay down some pride and walk over here and go, I messed up. I bought into the, the culture of lies. I bought into it, but I'm not. Now live loudly based on the truth of God instead. So let me pray for you. Lord, I pray that you would let everything that is of me, uh, would, that you would let it fall to the wayside and whatever is from you, that you would allow it to stick with us that like, and like a seed go deep into our hearts and find good soil and eventually bear fruit. I pray today, because we're talking about deception and compromise, God, I pray uh, that you would reveal to us where we have compromised. And um, when we say things, I believe this, this is what I think, this is what my convictions are, uh, that we would be able to answer the question rightly, where did we get that, and is it based on what the Bible says? And if it's not based on your word, uh, let us be humble enough to reconsider and to run back to your truth that should be a sword we wield instead of a sword wielded against us. God, we love you. We give this all to you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Everybody said amen. Why don't you stand with me? Here's my prayer for us today. May we, the church at Great Oaks, be known as a people who stand for truth no matter the cost. May the Holy Spirit speak to us about where we are deceived and where we have compromised. And may the truth of God's word be a sword that we wield in this life instead of a sword wielded against us in the next. God bless you. Thank you so much for coming today. As always, I encourage you, talk this over with your life group. And my challenge to you is that you not let this stop with you. If you've been helped to take your next step towards God today, go out and help others take their next step toward God. Be a Jesus follower who makes and disciples other Jesus followers. We've got prayer workers at the side that would love to pray with you as you leave or before you leave. We don't have a song at the end, so all of you are looking shocked right now. Uh, people say, like, we, a church like ours, Contemporary, doesn't have a liturgy. We don't have a thing that we do all the time, like tradition, liturgy. We have to say this prayer and do this at this time. But we do have a liturgy. I can tell by your faces we have a liturgy. Uh, we do the same thing every Sunday, and you're freaking out about it. And so that's okay. Uh, just God's going to stretch you today. It's going to be great. And normally what I would say is you are dismissed, but you are not dismissed. You are sent. Because you are to be a light in a dark place this week. Sunday is the beginning of the week, not the end. God bless you. We'll see you next week.